Life is hectic, so wherever tomorrow takes you, be ready with Factor's chef-crafted and dietitian approved meals delivered right to your door. With over 35 options a week, including keto, calorie smart, vegan and veggie, and more, they've got a variety that fits your lifestyle. Factor has restaurant-quality meals ready to heat and eat in just two minutes. They also have various easy options for the entire day, from breakfast to midday bites, smoothies, and more. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is a nutritious and delicious experience, and it won't break the bank. You can customize your meals by choosing 6 to 18 per week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule deliveries anytime to fit your schedule. Factor meals are 100% hassle-free, giving you more time for what matters. Head to factormeals.com slash otherside50 and use the code otherside50 to get 50% off. That's code otherside50 at factormeals.com for 50% off your delicious, hassle-free meals. Hi there, my name is uh, Jeffrey Olson, and I'm here to share my near-death experience, which interestingly enough was 25 years ago. You know, people say, wow, 25 years ago. How do you remember all that? For me, the near-death experience is like it was yesterday. The details never diminish. They never go away. A lot of the details around it all that were the non-out-of-body may be a bit blurry or foggy, but the near-death experience itself is crystal clear. And I think one of the things that's important to share, since it's been 25 years since the accident, I'm able to share it. Uh, my near-death experience was... Um, caused by a horrible automobile accident. It took the lives of half my family and it was very painful to share. In fact, I didn't talk about it for almost a decade. And we're gonna dive into that and I will share the long and short of it and we'll go from there. But just keep in mind, it has been 25 years. I couldn't even speak of this for years after it happened without bursting into tears and enough time and enough healing and enough processing has gone on now that I, I'm able to speak of it and do so quite candidly. And uh, hopefully I can keep my composure. It still is sometimes uh, emotional based on all that uh, went on. But the background on me, I'm a pretty simple guy. Gosh, I grew up on a family farm. I went away to college. I played American football on a Division I scholarship, which I was very proud of. I was physically fit. I was physically capable. And that plays into part of the experience as well. In college, I studied design, art. I was always an artist at heart. I went on to work in marketing at advertising agencies as an art director and creative director. But the most important thing that probably happened in college is I fell madly hopelessly <laughs> head over heels in love. And it was an interesting situation because I'll never forget what happened. I was actually quite shy. And this young woman came walking in the room. I didn't even know her name. And it, it hit me like a lightning bolt. It was like, wow, there was a knowing. There she is. And it's almost like I knew that was to be my wife. I mean, it was deeper than love at first sight. It was a knowing. It was an interesting thing that almost frightened me. And probably the biggest miracle is I began to speak to this young lady. I introduced myself. Her name was Tamara. 
Anyway, that introduction became a friendship, became a courtship, became a relationship, and eventually became a marriage. And we were um, madly in love and blissfully happy. We had our first son about three years into the marriage. And there was complications with the delivery and aftermath of having that first child. And we were told we may never have more children. But by uh, medical miracles and miracles that are just plain miracles, six years later, we had our second son. You know, I was working in the agency business. My wife was a high school teacher. And we had these two beautiful boys. And we had actually gone on vacation. We had gone away for the Easter weekend. We lived in the northern mountains of Utah. And we'd taken a road trip to the southern part of Utah with all the red rocks and arches and all the beautiful things that you can see um, in a short distance in the state of Utah. And we actually had gone to southern Utah to visit my wife's folks, her family, her mom and dad and her grandma and grandpa. And we'd had a wonderful visit. And we had celebrated the Easter weekend and Monday rolled around and it was time to go back to work. And we had about a four and a half, five hour drive ahead of us. And so we had breakfast, we hugged everyone and I knew I was going to miss half the day of work, if not the whole day. But we were hurrying to get home. Now, it was interesting and I'll never forget these details, which will become relevant as I get into the near-death experience. But we had said our goodbyes, we'd hugged everybody. I'd put the kids in their car seats in the back seat and Tamara and I had jumped in and we were just pulling away from the curb. And there was grandma and grandpa, her parents waving, you know, on the front porch like they do. As I began to pull away, Tamara said, wait, wait, stop. And I thought she had forgotten something. And I stopped the car and she looked at me and she said, I just want to say goodbye to mom and dad one more time. And in that moment, I thought, gosh, you know, women, I mean, we've loaded the car, we've got to get on our way. But I noticed as she jumped out of the car and she ran up to her mom and dad and she hugged them both. And she not only hugged them, but I noticed she, that she kissed them. She kissed both her mom and dad and then joyfully came and jumped in the car and buckled up and away we went. Now, I share that for this specific reason. Even in that moment when I thought, gosh, women, can we not get on the road? Somewhere she had a whisper. Somewhere she just had that, wait, stop. I've got to go hug mom and dad one more time. And I bring that up because I think we all get those. I've learned over the years to become very conscious of that. When you get that little hit, that little whisper, hey, I've just got to go do this. I'm so grateful that Tamara did that, that she said, stop, wait, I've got to go say goodbye to mom and dad. Because as the day played out, that was the last goodbye. And I noticed it. She jumped in the car and I hit the interstate and I cranked the uh, cruise control up to 75 miles an hour, which was as fast as I could legally go. And I was hustling to get back, you know, get back to work, get back to the office, get back to our lives after this break. And, you know, all that chitter chatter that goes on in your head about the to-do list and the things that had to happen. And there's one more precursor to this that I wanted to bring up. And that is, as I was racing up the freeway and thinking about all those things, I happened to just look in the rear view mirror. 
And these are moments. These are just, it was a glance just to look at traffic, you know, see what traffic's doing. And as I glanced in the rearview mirror, my youngest son, Griffin, he, he caught my eye and I noticed he was sound asleep in his car seat. And even in that glance, it's almost like time stood still. And I was overcome with, wow, there he is. A miracle. We were told we may never have more children and there he is. And I noticed details. You know, I noticed how his hands were laid on the car seat tray. And, and I noticed how long his eyelashes were. In a moment, just in that glance, I, I saw that and I felt him. And then I heard the laughter and playing my seven-year-old son. My oldest was playing with action figures in the back seat behind me and making all the joyful noise of a little boy. And I just thought, wow, how, how did we get so lucky? At the same time, I just glanced at Tamara, my wife, who had also reclined her seat back and she was sound asleep but she was still holding on to my hand. And I thought, wow, we're 10 years into a marriage. You know, <laughs> she's teaching school. I'm running crazy in the agency business. And she's still holding my hand. I became aware of that. Wow, she's holding my hand just like she did, you know, when I took her on that first date and had a couple extra bucks to take her to a dollar movie as a starving college student. But it was this absolute moment of gratitude this surreal glance in the rearview mirror and seeing what I was surrounded by and being extremely grateful for what I had and for those that were so close to me that I loved so much. And it was about an hour after that, that um, it all came apart. There was reports of crosswinds. There was reports of, you know, a pickup truck driving erratically on the interstate. I think one of the most difficult things about telling the story is um, I believe I may have dozed off at the will. I might have just nodded off briefly like that. And at any rate, I swerved to the right. I overcorrected to the left and I, I lost control of the vehicle and it flipped and began to roll not off the road, but down the road at 75 miles an hour on that concrete. And it was a horrific automobile accident. They say the car rolled at least six to eight times. I blacked out for most of that. But as the car came to a stop, I was completely conscious. And the first thing I heard was my seven-year-old, my oldest son, crying hysterically in the back seat. And my thought was, I've got to get to my boy. I've got to get to my son. And that's when I realized that I could not move. I was pinned either to the floorboard or the seat. I couldn't tell. There was the rancid, you know, smell of gasoline, all the broken glass. And I was unaware of my injuries. Actually, both of my legs had been crushed and shattered. My left leg was eventually amputated above the knee. My back had been broken in two places, spinal column not damaged. My right arm had almost been torn completely off. The seatbelt had cut through me and ruptured all my insides. My rib cage had been damaged and my lungs were collapsing. I found it hard to breathe. I was losing consciousness. I was aware of the pain, but the adrenaline was, I've got to get to my boy. I can hear my son. He's crying. And yet that's when the reality hit the horrible reality that no one else was crying. 
And I became aware at the scene of the accident that both Tamara, my wife, and Griffin, my youngest son, were gone. They were killed instantly in the crash. And that's the darkest hell a, a man could ever be in. Here I was pinned, unable to move, losing consciousness. I had a hysterical seven-year-old that I could not get to. Half the family's gone, and I'm aware of that, and I was driving the car. The guilt, the, the regret, that I, I just, I wanted those three seconds back. What happened? What happened? I, it felt like this has got to be a, a nightmare, but it was not. And it was in that darkest moment, that darkest terror, really, that the interesting thing happened. And what happened is in that chaotic darkness, suddenly light came. And when I say that, it felt as if light came to me. It felt as if light came and surrounded me and literally was comforting me in this horrific situation. And then suddenly I could breathe. I began, it felt as if I was rising above the accident scene. And I, and I kept thinking, how can I be okay? Because it felt like, wow, I'm, I'm okay. I'm, I can breathe. The pain is gone. I'm very conscious, super conscious. I believe what was happening is my soul had left my body. But here I was in this light, wondering how can I possibly be okay? And then Tamara, my wife, who I knew, I knew she was deceased at the scene. Suddenly she was in this light with me, right there, right with me. And there was no injuries or trauma. She was gorgeous. She was radiant and she was communicating to me. She kept saying, Jeff, you can't be here. You can't be here. You got to go back. You got to go back. You can't come. You've got to go back. And she was emotional and emphatic about it. And I was still kind of <laughs> searching for my bearings here, like, like what's going on? And But we literally had a conversation. We had a conversation about if I stayed with her, our son would be orphaned. And we literally made the choice that I was coming back. And we have no idea how powerful our thoughts are, you know, as, as, as we made that choice. And I said the most profound goodbye I'll ever say. I didn't have to figure out how to come back. It was in making the choice. Our thoughts are so powerful. Suddenly in saying that goodbye and choosing, I'm, I'm going back. I found myself wandering around a hospital. When I say wandering around, moving about freely. Now, here's the interesting thing. I have no concept of time in this light, if you will. You know, I later found out that other drivers stopped at the scene. Spencer, my seven-year-old, was banged up pretty good, but he physically walked away from the accident. I mean, he was... He was banged up physically, but he was okay. I think he bruised his ribs and he'd cracked his wrist. But emotionally, he thought the whole family was gone. I had to be extricated from the car. And, and because of my injuries, I was airlifted or life flighted to the nearest level one trauma center. I knew none of that. All I knew is that I'd crashed the car. We'd lost half the family. 
I had had this profound out-of-body or near-death experience. I had said the most profound goodbye I'll ever say. And here I was moving freely about the hospital. And as I moved about, I encountered the, the, the nurses and the doctors and the other patients and the, the families of the patients, everything in a hustling, bustling, level one trauma emergency setting. And yet as I encountered them, it's difficult to know the words to use. As I encountered them, I knew them perfectly. Even if they, they were strangers perhaps in this realm, but everyone I saw, I knew them perfectly. I, I knew everything about, I, I knew their love. I knew their hate. I knew their motivations. I knew their challenges. I, I, I knew their, I knew their thoughts. I, I knew their, their decisions and choices. I knew them as well as I knew myself. I now call it a oneness. There was an undeniable connection and I knew them and I, I knew about them and I was aware of, of the very essence of, of them. For, for instance, um, and this is just one example, everyone I encountered, it was the same, but a nurse passed me and, and they seemed to be unaware of me. But in that instant, I knew her and I felt as if it had even happened to me. I felt and knew the abuse that she had experienced as a child. You know, verbal, emotional, physical and sexual abuse. I felt it as if it was my own. And yet I knew it was had happened to her, but I, I felt that and the weight of that. And yet in that same instant also realized her magnificence. It's like, look at her. Wow, she's been through that. And here she is in a hospital healing and serving and, and taking care of other people. That this was true of everyone I encountered. I knew them perfectly, and yet it was all connected in this absolute unconditional love. Love without conditions. Everyone I saw, I loved them. And I loved them for who they are and what they had experienced and how they had overcome that or even in the struggle within it. And uh, it was profound. It was profound. I, I, I call it oneness. I was connected. And then I suddenly came up to a body that I didn't feel anything from, which I thought was strange given this experience. And so I stepped closer to look. And that's when I realized, oh my goodness, that's me. Or I recognized my body. That wasn't me. I was having this profound connected experience, but there was my skin you know, my skin suit, there was the flesh, there was the body that I was going to uh, have to get back into and that I had lived my life up until that point within. That was profound as well. I mean, I stood over my body looking at it thinking, wow, I never realized, I never knew the miracle, <laughs> the miracle that our body is. I mean, gosh, I didn't have to remind my heart to beat or tell my lungs to breathe or tell my eyes to see or my ears to hear, I became very aware of the miraculous machine that our body is. And yet mine was so broken. There was a profound sense of sadness as I looked at my body, realizing that I had taken for granted my physicality, my, my ability as a person to live and to be. And yet I also knew I had to get back in that body in its brokenness. 
And again, our thoughts are so powerful. I didn't have to figure out how, just the choice, the intention, I'm going in, I'm going into the body. Boom, then I was back in the body, but back to the grief and the pain and the regret and the guilt and the trauma. It was so heavy to be back in the body. Now I was ventilated. They had a big tube down my throat doing the breathing for my lungs. My legs were obviously immobile, having been crushed and shattered. And my right arm was immobile, given the fact that it had been torn out. And my abdomen and hip was filleted wide open, intestines ruptured. And then they eventually tied down my left hand because I kept pulling at all the medical equipment. So I literally laid there in ICU, in and out of consciousness. But wow, I learned a whole new meaning to be still. I mean, I, I had no choice. I literally just laid there. And, you know, certainly I contemplated the out of body or near death experience, but boy, the grief and the remorse and the regret and all of it was so heavy. It was very difficult. It was very difficult to be back in the body and in all of that. I was in the hospital for five months. I had 18 surgeries in all. I was in ICU for weeks and weeks, and then I would get out of ICU and be in surgical recovery, but then I would throw a pulmonary emboli or a blood clot that would lodge in the lung, and I would be put back in ICU. I was very, very sick for many weeks and months, and yet it was a profound experience there too, because it's almost as if I had one foot in this realm and one foot in the next. Now, there's a key part of the near-death experience that I want to share because this is unique to perhaps my experience, and that is when I was life-flighted into the Level 1 Trauma Center, one of the doctors, actually Dr. Jeff O'Driscoll, he's written about this and has spoken about it publicly. He and one of the nurses had a profound experience as well. While I was out of the body, while I was having this near-death experience, they had an experience where they came into the operating room, the emergency trauma center where I had been airlifted into. And they both reported that they saw and experienced my wife, Tamara, who was killed at the scene. They experienced her soul, her spirit in the operating room. Dr. Jeff O'Driscoll shares that he came in and she was standing in the air above my gurney and she communicated with him. Now, this is an interesting thing that clinicians, you know, and, and doctors would speak up and, and talk about these spiritual experiences. But when I asked him, what did she communicate to you? He shared with me, she simply thanked us. She simply shared her gratitude for all we were doing to save your life. And when he said that, I thought, of course she did. That's exactly how she was. But I also realized he didn't know that we'd had this conversation, that we'd made this deal, that I had agreed to come back and I was going to raise our surviving son. Of course, that's how she would act. But there was interesting things in the hospital, including that little, what, side note that, gosh, clinicians had a profound experience. They weren't experiencing a near death their you know their body wasn't shutting down and their brain wasn't lacking oxygen they were alive and well and healthy in the operating room and experienced my wife's soul as they worked on me and as i was making the choice to go back into the body 
I suppose in saying goodbye to my wife, Tamara, they were saying hello. They were introduced and she communicated how grateful she was for them saving my life. That's an interesting side note. But the months in the hospital were profound. There was times that it was so painful. I felt like I would leave the body again. Like I would just have to take a break and stand over in the corner of the room and look at my broken self, just getting a breather and getting up the nerve to get back in the body and keep going. Perhaps the most profound experience came at the end of my hospital stay. And it's probably worth pointing out that the two near-death experiences, the really profound experiences, were at the accident scene, you know, before I had had morphine and all the narcotics administered. And then at the end of my hospital stay, when I was off of all the narcotics and simply taking some Tylenol for pain. But at the end of the hospital stay, I had been moved from ICU to surgical recovery, and I was finally actually in the rehabilitation wing. The amputation was complete. They had finally managed to secure my abdominal wounds and get the infections all taken care of. And I was hooked up to a colostomy at that point. My right leg was in a, a brace straight out because they had attempted to repair that knee. And my right arm was in a sling because they were attempting to uh, repair that shoulder. They had uh, reattached all the rotator cuff and they were doing some strange electroshock therapy to get the nerves regenerate back into the muscles. I was learning to dress myself with one arm, which I wasn't very good at. And then they had an electric wheelchair that they were training me to get in and out of and drive with my one hand that worked. But it was at that moment, at that point, that I had another profound out-of-body or near-death experience. And it was one night when I finally laid on my side I, I naturally sleep on my side and I'd laid on my back for so long in the hospital. In fact, I'd laid on my back so long I'd rubbed all the hair off the back of my head. I was bald on the back of my head from laying in the bed so long. And I laid on my side and I fell into a deep, peaceful sleep. And it's like I was aware that I was in a deep, peaceful sleep. I was sleeping and thinking, wow, I haven't slept peacefully for months. It's been so traumatic and the grief the grief was so heavy, and I had lamented my, my youngest son and his passing and the accident and my wife and all of it. But on this particular night, as I slept, I felt that light come again. I felt that light come, just like at the scene of the accident. It seemed to wrap around me and comfort me in my grief. I seemed to rise above the hospital bed. It was that lift. But this time, the, um, the light dispensed. And I was in the most beautiful, beautiful place. People can say heaven or the spirit world or the other side. The only word that comes close to what I was experiencing is I was home. I was home. It was so familiar. It was so welcoming. I was home and I began to run. Now, I don't run in this realm, but there I had two feet and two legs and I began to run. And it was such a physical experience. I mean, it was so physical. I mean, here I was out of the body, but I could literally feel the energy of the ground beneath my feet. And I could feel the intelligence of every cell in my calves and thighs. It was, a, it was an invigorating physical experience. I was running and I was laughing gleefully thinking, I'm home, I'm home. And that's, that's when the knowing came that you're not here to stay. 
I knew I wasn't there to stay. And at that same time, there was this corridor off to the left. And I knew intuitively I'm to go that way. I'm to go down that way. And I did. I began working my way down this corridor. But as I did, I looked at the end of the corridor. There was an end and, and at the end was a crib. Now, Griffin, my, my son had been sleeping in a crib at the time of the accident. He was only 14 months old. He was just a toddler. And so I raced to this crib and I looked in the crib. And when I did, there he was. There was my little boy and he was sleeping as beautifully and as peacefully as when I glanced in that rearview mirror. That's why I bring this up. I looked at him laying there and the same emotions came up. He's a miracle. I noticed the details. I noticed how long his eyelashes were and I I picked him up and I held him and it was solid. I don't, I don't know if you've ever picked up a sleeping child, but there's a weight and a heat to him. And I, I picked him up and held him against me and he was solid against me. And I could, I could feel him breathing. I could feel his breath on my neck. And I even, I leaned over and I, and I smelled his hair. And I don't know if you've ever smelled the hair of a loved one, but it's like, this is my little boy. It was so physical and so tangible and so real. And I, I began to weep just holding him and smelling his hair and kissing his face. And as I did that, I felt this presence come up behind me, this overwhelming, powerful, cosmic presence. And then I began to have that guilt bubble up again, all that regret. I was holding him and given my upbringing, I, I was feeling like, wow, that presence is God. And, and I'm, I'm in so much trouble. My little boy's here because I crashed the car. You know, his life was cut short because I dozed off and I lost control. And, and all that guilt was coming up as I held him weeping now with this presence coming closer and closer and closer. And I had the thought, I hope there's some way I can be forgiven. And as I had that thought, this presence had come so close and this almost felt physical that I just felt these divine arms just wrap around and hold me and my little boy. And I just began to weep. And with that thought, I hope I can be forgiven. There was this download, this download of information, of peace, of love. The first thing that was communicated is there's nothing to forgive. Everything is in perfect divine order. And of course, I was weeping, thinking, how can that be? How can that be? And then I had what I've learned is called the life review. I began to see my life. You know, I saw my parents' divorce and what that did to me. My, it made me so insecure and my self-doubt and my not-enoughness. And I saw my brothers and the role they played in my life as my best friends and my heroes. And I saw things even when I'd say, oh, that, that was a mistake. I didn't mean to do that. And this beautiful being that held me said, there are no mistakes. What did you learn? What did you learn? And so I was looking at my life and being coached to look at it differently. I even saw things and I thought, well, that was wrong. And I knew it was wrong and I did it anyway. And this beautiful being that held me said, that's your judgment of it, not ours. What have you become because of it, not in spite of it? And there was all this love. There was so much unconditional love in these arms and no judgment, only beauty and peace and insight, like deep wisdom and I was also given a huge tutorial on choice. You know, I was sitting there just gutted, holding my little boy, knowing he had passed and knowing it was the car crash that had caused that and looking at my life. And I was told by this 
divine presence, this being who held me that even felt physical the way I was held, I was told, you can be mad at God your whole life because the crash happened, you know, because God allowed that. I was a believer. I am a believer. And that would be okay. They would love me anyway. Or I was told I could be mad at myself my whole life because I was driving the car and that would be okay. They would love me anyway. It was nothing but love. But I was also given a third choice. And this was interesting because the being who held me, who I call God, said, I want you to have your will in this circumstance. And I'm like, my will? I was brought up in a conservative Christian home. It's your will be done, not my will be done. And this being communicated to me, God said, your will is my will. That's how much we love you. My will has always been that you have free will and I want you to make a choice. And it was communicated to me that I could give my son back, that I could exercise my will and hand him over to God and release him and trust and let go, rather than harboring all that anger and guilt and turmoil within me. And in all that peace and in all that love and in all that beauty and all that insight and wisdom, I was able to kiss my little boy and I handed him back. I gave him over. I handed him over to God and I let go. And then I was back in the hospital bed, you know, back to the amputation and the colostomy bag and the braces and the wheelchair and all that went with it. But I had a little bit different insight. It had expanded everything for me. I mean, I, I had grown up believing that life was a test and that I was most certainly failing it and that God was going to judge me and that I was practically always in trouble. And yet in all that love and in all that beauty, I realized that life is not a test. It was a gift. I was told life is a gift. Life is a gift every day. And in every moment, I have a choice of what I choose to do or how I choose to react. Even the emotions, if something makes me angry, what a gift that I can feel an emotion and know what that feels like as compared to joy. There was this unfolding if you will, of, of just knowing, you know, and gosh, it was, it was interesting. I'll, I'll wrap up as we move onward. I mean, I still had grief. I grieved as miserably as any man would grieve. Uh, my surviving son, Spencer, he was amazing. I mean, he would, he wasn't allowed to see me at first because of the state of my body, but he had been able to come to the hospital and visit and he was staying with my younger brother and his wife and my older brother and his wife that my, my family just rallied around me. I was going to be going home soon. I was going home to my younger brother's house where my son had been staying and they had set up a room and put a hospital bed in it. I still had months of rehab and home health and nurses coming into the house and everything else. But I'll tell this one last story and, and wrap it up, but it was time for me to go home. And I mentioned, gosh, my right leg was in a brace. My left leg was amputated above the knee. I was, my right arm was all bound up in a sling and all I could do is drive an electric wheelchair with my left hand. And my brothers came to get me and they would literally have to lift me. They would have to lift me up and put me in the wheelchair. And gosh, men, I, I learned what brothers are. I learned what it means for men to stick up for each other and stand with each other and to 
assist each other in ways. If we could do that in the world, we would change the whole world. <laughs> we really would. But my brothers were amazing. And they were bringing me home and they lifted me in the chair and got me in the car and lifted me out of the chair and put me in the car and put the chair in the back. And we drove to my brother's house where I was going to be staying for a while, where my son had been. And he was excited for me to come home, but I was so worried about how he would accept me. I mean, I'd been the rough and tumble dad and now I was crippled and had this colostomy bag and all the things that went with it. I just, I was never going to be the same. And I kept worrying, how is he going to deal with this? How is he going to accept me? And as we pulled up to the house, there was my son, seven years old, looking out the window, watching as his uncles, you know, my brothers lifted me out of the car and into the car, into the wheelchair. I kept thinking, how is he going to deal with this? How is he going to accept me? And I began to navigate my way. They had built a ramp for me and they were insistent that I become independent. I had to drive that wheelchair into the house. And Spencer, my seven-year-old, came running out the door and he came running toward me and he ran right past me. And I thought, well, that that's it. This is too much for him to see me like this and to be on his turf now. This, It's just too much. It, it, he's got to process this. And I continued to navigate the wheelchair and go to the ramp. And I was turning the wheelchair to go up the ramp. And I just you know, looked over my shoulder to see where he had gone. And then I heard him. And what he had done is he'd walk, he had run across the street and he was knocking on all the neighbors' doors and he began to shout, come out, come out. My dad has made it home. Come and see my dad. And I burst into tears again and um, he made the rounds hollering and then he came and he did throw himself on my lap, which just about killed me because I still had all the sutures from the abdominal repair. And he threw his arms around my neck and I, I told him, look, I'm going to work really hard to get well, but I'm going to be like this for a while. Are you going to be okay? Now, he's a grown man now. It's been 25 years, but we still laugh about what he said. He said, Dad, if you were nothing but a puddle of blood, I would still love you. And uh, that's been true. But the reason I bring this up is here I was in this realm, in a wheelchair, holding my surviving son, and suddenly it was no less profound than being in another realm in a near-death experience, holding my son who had passed in the arms of God. I mean, suddenly heaven was right here. There was nowhere to go. There was nothing to become. There was nothing to do. It was simply to be in that perfect moment, feeling the unconditional love of my child, which felt as powerful as the unconditional love of the divine. I realized maybe heaven can be right here if we just choose to experience things that way. Life rolled on. I mean, I had a year of rehab. They eventually fit me with a prosthetic limb, taught me how to walk again. They were able to take the colostomy bag down. I healed in amazing ways. I got almost 70% use of my right arm back. It's a miracle. I've stayed close to the doctors who were part of the trauma team. Jeff O'Driscoll and I are still good friends. And other miracles happened. Other angels came. Sometimes the angels were my brothers. Sometimes it was my mom or my dad or the neighbors. There was angels from other realms too. I, I, I'm a firm believer that I've got two of the most powerful guardian angels in those loved ones of mine that have graduated from life that look out for me and watch over me. I actually, I eventually fell in love again. Uh, Tanya, my current wife, came into my life. And that was an incredible experience as well. I wasn't dating, I wasn't looking. And um, 
my wife who had passed even let me know in a profound way that uh, even though she and Tanya didn't know each other in this life, from that realm, she had sent her my way. She had said, uh, you know, she said to me in this strange after-death communication, she said, Jeff, you're a pretty good dad, but you're a lousy mom. And my little boy deserves a good mom. And uh, anyway, miracles happened. Tanya and I fell in love and remarried. We adopted two boys. I don't even call them my adopted boys. They're simply my sons that have come into my life. And I'm, I mean, I've had so much trauma and turmoil, but I think in many ways, I'm, I may be the luckiest man alive, the way things have played out and the way things have gone on. But um, the near-death experience has taught me that what's important is the life experience you know, you don't have to have a horrible accident and lose half your family to realize, wow, let's make the best of today because maybe we don't get tomorrow. And people have said to me, oh, you must have been spared for some profound, you know, reason, some profound thing to do in the world. And I kind of, um, I laugh to myself sometimes and say, well, yeah, to watch another sunset or to play catch with my son or to have that conversation or do that puzzle or, or, or even smile at a stranger on the street. The little things for me have become the big things. Life is a gift. It's not a test. And there is oneness. We are connected. We do have oneness if we choose to embrace and see each other that way rather than judging and dividing. Gosh, I've, I've told so much more of this story in uh, in my personal memoir called Knowing, Knowing by Jeffrey Olson. And then my oldest son and I have just come out with a children's book. Now here was Spencer, my oldest son, seven. When this all happened, he didn't have a near-death experience or an out-of-body experience or have the profound things that happened to me happen to him. He was a little boy and he had none of that. He had to navigate this through the innocence of a child. He lost his mom, his brother. He lost his father in many ways. And we've recently done a children's book called Where Are You? And they're both available on Amazon, or you can go to the website and, uh, and find them. EnvoyPublishing.com, E-N-V-O-Y Publishing.com. But Spencer let out because he wanted all those young people who had grief, who had lost loved ones. He wanted them to have answers. And it's a beautiful book. You know, none of this is religious. It's spiritually based, but it's his experience of where's his mom? Where's his little brother? And how could he connect with them? And he came to the profound realization that, um, that they are right there with him, if he's just open to it, that they live on through him. But that's the story. That's the long and short of it. And, uh, I trust there's something in there that may have uh, been an answer for you or may have assisted you along your way. In closing, all there is is love. Even grief is love. We only grieve because we love. And uh, lean into the love in your life. Tell the people you love that you love them. Smile at that stranger. <laughs> Pitch in. Be more kind. Be more you. And simply be the highest manifestation of you there can be thank you we all fall in when the